About 15 years ago, I went with a friend to New Hampshire, where he was busy going door-to-door canvassing people on a political campaign. And what we discovered within a few minutes of getting there is that at least in the neighborhood we were in, none of the houses had doorbells. It took a little while to figure out why, and then it came to me. If we know you, come on in. If we don't, go away. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about family, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, Seth. This is an ad for the Gulabis. We are a group of women who migrated to the U.S. 25 to 30 years ago. We're professional women who want to give back, and we focus on fundraising for health, education, and hunger. We currently have a Bollywood dance fundraiser going on. I hope you'll join us. Look us up at Gulabis, G-U-L as in Larry, A, B as in boy, I, S as in Sam, dot O-R-G. Thanks. This week's rant is particularly simple to describe, but I hope that you will take a few cycles to think about it because it explains an enormous amount about our culture and about some of the changes that we're going through right now. As you've heard me talk about before, marketing, culture, community, it tends to be driven by two things, status and affiliation. Not just among humans, but we're just going to talk about humans today. Status and affiliation. Status is who's up and who's down. Is somebody moving up in status or down from this interaction? What Keith Johnstone wrote about in his breakthrough book, Impro, more than 50 years ago, is that theater is nothing but status roles. Who's up and who's down. Every single scene of any worthwhile play or movie is about the shift in status roles and affiliation. How are you compared to the Godfather? Is the Godfather moving up or down? Are you moving up or down? That is what happens in every scene. And affiliation? Affiliation is who's to my left and who's to my right. Am I fitting in? So all you have to do is go to the high school cafeteria to see these two factors at work in a really plaintive, hormonally driven way. What table are you sitting at? What clothes are you wearing? Where are you in class? Are you aligned with the teacher or are you aligned with the kids in the back who are the class clowns? How did you do on the SATs? Is the school you're going to famous or not famous? Are you wearing new shoes today? Do your parents have the money to buy you anything you want? What kind of car did you drive to school? What's in your lunch bag? What are people saying about you behind your back? Who are you dating? Who's taking you to the senior prom? You get the idea status roles, and affiliation. Who are we ahead of? Who is next to us? And it turns out that in the last 50 years, there has been an extraordinary shift in the way our culture has dealt with media and these two questions. And the way I want to summarize it is with a simple question, which is, how big is your family? Now, that seems like a very specific thing to say, A friend of mine has 48 grandchildren. We know how big his family is if we're looking at genes. But tribal behavior, going back tens of thousands of years, the way human beings spread around the planet, tribal behavior has 
a genetic component to it, but that's not all it involves. We came together in villages and cadres and communities for a reason. Because if you're out there by yourself, you might get run over by a woolly mammoth. But together in these groups, we have safety. So these groups, Dunbar calls it Dunbar's number, 150 people. After 150 people, the group tends to split apart. W.L. Gore, the person who invented Gore-Tex, as he built his company, as soon as any group, any office got to 150 people, he split it and opened new offices. 150 people was generally considered the number of people who knew you well enough to come to your funeral, a group that you could care about. And once you care about a group, guess what? Status roles and affiliation. What does it mean to be part of this group? Who's the leader of the group? Are you likely to get thrown out of the group? And so we are wired, I believe, not just by culture, but we are wired to want to be able to see and be seen by these groups of 150 people. But then we can layer things on top of that. Only a few thousand years we've had nation states. Nation states are bigger families, bigger circles. Our country is better than your country. We are the Romans or the Greeks. We're going to invade you. The folks who worked with Genghis Khan, they weren't necessarily related to him, but they were a circle bigger than 150 people. And as they took over village after village, spanning a huge part of the globe, they increased the size of, quote, their family. And Genghis Khan notoriously had more than 10,000 offspring because he exerted his status by raping women everywhere he went. So we add these pieces up and we start to think about how big is our circle. The ethicist Peter Singer has described a thought problem that really unsettles undergrads and even people who are beyond undergrads like me. It's pretty simple, which is you are walking on your way to a meeting. You're wearing your brand new Bally or Gucci or whatever shoes, and they cost 400 bucks. And as you're walking along the campus, you see a young girl face down in a puddle. She's drowning in three inches of water. What do you do? Well, almost everyone says, well, I'll run into the puddle and save her life. It won't be very hard. Yes, Peter points out, but you will ruin your $400 pair of shoes and you'll have to buy a new pair. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, sure. Of course I would do that. I would save this young girl's life even though I had to buy a new $400 pair of shoes to replace the old ones. Okay, Peter says, so if you're willing to spend $400 to save a life and I can show you people who are going to starve to death or fall prey to a debilitating disease because they can't get a vaccine or have diarrhea that's easily cured and with $400, you could save 10 of their lives, pay up. And if you pay up the $400, pay up again. In fact, you should never go to a restaurant again for the rest of your life because every time you do, there's somebody who needs the money more than you. And when we hear this, it makes us uncomfortable because knowing that that person is a click away at some level makes them part of our family. That what has happened is we have gone from the bimodal arguing between the Soviet Union and the United States, fueled by millions of dollars of propaganda spent on both sides. And then all of a sudden, we weren't mad at Russia anymore. 
that the idea that there is another country over there that is the enemy brings together this country. That at one level, patriotism is about status rules. I want to be part of a team that is better than the other team. The people who go and cheer the Pittsburgh Penguins at a hockey game, they don't know any of the Pittsburgh hockey players. They're not particularly fond of Penguins, so why are they cheering? Because it's their team. And when someone sees their team winning, they feel a little bit like someone may feel when their kid gets into a famous college. That scarcity combines with status roles and affiliation to give us a measure of how we see the world, of how we make decisions. There are heartwarming stories from all over the world of how small groups of people, villages or hundreds or thousands of people, come together in the face of a natural disaster. There's a flood and you need a place to sleep, come on in. You're hungry, we have food to share. Because we are treating those people like family. That's not the same as giving a kidney to somebody across the country or across the world that you have never met. We keep playing with how big these circles are. Are you in our circle or not? And, and I think this is a big insight here, many people have a cultural bias for a certain family size. That if you are coming from a Calvinist tradition, you may see that the primary family size is in fact the nuclear family. That the father is correct that the father is in charge, that what happens inside your house is completely up to you. And you can see plenty of examples in pop culture, books or narratives about a mindset that says, it's none of the government's business what happens inside the home. And if someone is getting abused or if someone isn't getting every benefit of the doubt that they deserve, that stays within the family walls. And there are other cultural dynamics that say no, the family is much bigger than that. And we is more important than me. And that shifting the size of the family starts to create tension. It creates tension around things related to commerce, but also around culture. Because when the family, again in quotation marks, is smaller, culture is easier to control. We don't read books like that around here. We don't listen to music like that around here. We can treat outsiders with less dignity and less respect because that moves us up in our eyes when it comes to status. And we can see examples of this in almost every city and village in the world. An old friend of mine used to point out that Division Street was one of the most popular names for streets in the United States, more popular than Main Street, he said. Why? What does Division Street point out? It points out these dividers, these dividers of across the tracks is not our family. Our family is over here. And so now we have a few challenges. First television, but now incredibly, the internet keeps pushing us to do two things at the same time. One, make our family ever bigger. Here's a GoFundMe. Somebody needs your help. You've never met them. You never will, but you will support them. Or maybe you won't. Maybe you won't see it. So at the same time that we have these connections going on, we also have divisions going on. That Facebook's stupid decision to build an algorithm that would divide every culture it could find just to make a profit has worked. 
it has created ever deeper divisions. Because for people who are trying to make their family circle smaller, who are seeking the status that comes from our tribe is doing better than yours, our circle is winning, these folks are getting fuel from a social media that has been weaponized to remind them of the us and the them. So we've got these two forces going on at exactly the same time. And then rolling right into this is our generational challenge with the climate. Because you probably don't dump trash right into your own backyard. You probably don't even dump your trash right on your neighbor's front yard. Because that would hurt your status. It would break your affiliation. That the people who live on your block, whether it's a gated community, an HOA, or just simply a block, those people at some level might be family. And as the circle gets bigger, the question that our challenge with climate raises is this. How big is our family? Is it okay to buy bottled water or a cheeseburger knowing that the act of doing that is going to cost somebody in Bangladesh their home. Coming to the conclusion that our entire planet is our family is difficult indeed. The single easiest way to make it happen would be if the aliens finally arrived from Mars. People with bug heads, people who were 19 feet tall, people who weren't people at all, and other, and other that would unite all the people on this planet, seven billion of them, in a way that reminds them that every one of us is descended from just 40 people less than a million years ago. That, in fact, we are all family, but it is very uncomfortable to imagine that. Because once we do, issues of status and affiliation rear their head again and again and again. So I have no answers for you this week, but I wanted to highlight that looking for the roles of status and affiliation and family size, about who gets to decide how big your family is, about who gets a say in how we are in the world, these are the discussions of our future. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. 
Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings Seth, this is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any other episode or just about anything you want, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Try to keep it clear and concise. The broader the question, the deeper it can go, the more likely it is I can get to it. Here we go. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam calling in from Berlin. Your recent blog post on office gossip really got me thinking. You mentioned a cardinal rule in this blog post, which is to not talk about anybody if they aren't in the room. Now, I would love for you to elaborate more on how you actually uh, implement this rule. You know, when you speak about not talking about somebody, would you restrict that to not um, speaking ill about somebody also, or would you also include not praising them if they are in the same room? Because I don't know if this rule is symmetrical. Um, further, there is also the nuance of defending people when they are not around, which sometimes involves talking about them when they aren't in the room. So I'd love for you to elaborate more on this rule and how you see it applied in real-life situations. Thank you. Thank you for this, Anupam. I love hearing your voice. You've been a pioneer from the very beginning, asking questions, and this is a good chance for me to clarify my post about gossip. It's impossible in any corporate environment I can imagine to not talk about people when they're not in the room. This is the essence of managers talking to each other about their teams, for example. However, what I was trying to point out is this. Every time you are doing that, you are layering one more level of indirection and potential gossip. You're having trouble keeping track of your story. That figuring out how to make it so that the people are in the room when you are talking about them will change what you say and change how they act. And so, no, it is not a hard and fast rule, but it is a goal. When you say something nice about someone in front of their face, that's really good. If you say something nice about someone behind their back, that's almost as good if they find out they might be pleased. But the opportunity we have is to show up in front of people, to say what we mean and to mean what we say, and to do that consistently over time. Thanks for this question. Hi, this is Jim from uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, soon to be moving to Raleigh, North Carolina. My question is related to your episode about public funding of stadiums for uh, professional sports teams. So I've been involved in sports as an athlete, a coach, a broadcaster. I even published my own sports magazine. And from every uh, one of those angles, I've seen athletics generate really a stunning amount of illogical behavior. Like, why do fans spend $150 on a jersey with somebody else's name on the back when that player could leave the team the next year? And why do fans on one team think the referees are out to get them? 
while fans on the other team think the referees are out to get them. And then the question that you raise, like, why are people okay with paying for a new stadium and bailing out a, a billionaire owner? So my question is, how do you balance achieving a logical outcome and doing what you think is the right logical thing while also achieving an emotional outcome when the emotions are often, you know, rooted in illogical uh, thinking. And this happens not just in sports, happens in, in business and just life in general. So I'd love to hear uh, your perspective on this, Seth. Also, uh, when we were choosing what city to move to from Erie, uh, the factors we considered were weather and schools for my daughter. Stadiums did not make our list. Uh, thanks a lot, Seth, and keep up the good work. Thank you for this eloquent question, Jim. And you make a great point, And I hope you and your family enjoy Raleigh. The one thing I would like to distinguish is this. We would like to believe that there are places we make rational arguments and then other things, special things, for the irrational parts. The irrational parts of the person buying a $150 Pittsburgh Penguins jersey that they only wear in a certain moment, etc. But when we're talking to humans, all we've got is all we've got. The rational stuff and the irrational stuff are all of a piece that even rational people, I don't know, field medal winners who are working on mathematical problems. Sooner or later, our emotions change what we see, what we say, how we understand the world. So if we're going to change people with empathy, we have to realize that like us, they have a noise in their head. They believe things that we can show to be not true, just like we believe things that can be shown to be not true. True itself is an abstract idea that works great on a blackboard, but rarely survives an interaction with actual humans. So what I think we need to do with sports or just about anything else that gets people to be irrational is accept the fact that irrationality is part of the deal. Hi, Seth. Uh, this is Vanessa calling from Tokyo. I have uh, a bit of a question for you around uh, longevity and brand longevity. Uh, I uh, work in live in Japan, and Japan has some of the longest uh, existing brands, over 100-year-old brands. Uh, you know, around whether they're family brands or larger brands that you might know, like Nintendo or, or Suntory. So I was wanting to know what your take is on brands that are able to survive, thrive, pivot, and continue to be versus brands that maybe lose their way and do not survive or thrive, and what you see the difference uh, being. I've uh, run every day for nearly 10 years uh, as part of Outrun Cancer. Uh, a little initiative that I started to run for a friend. And you are a big part of my running um, inspiration every morning. And uh, and this always gets me thinking. So it's a great way to start the day. So my question is, what does it take for a brand to survive and thrive through to be 100 years old? Thanks. Thank you for this, Vanessa. And thank you for showing up for 10 years and running and caring and making a difference. I think there are two kinds of long brands in Japan and elsewhere. One kind, the kind that is easy to celebrate, is a mochi shop that's been in business in the same location for 245 years. I think that reflects a culture, I think that's disappearing in Japan, that rewards, prizes, longevity over the flash in the pan new place. That what they are doing is responding to a marketplace that wants to know that something is going to be around tomorrow and a week from now and a year from now. And they invest in that very idea. But the other kind, and you mentioned Nintendo, I think there's a little survival bias there, that Nintendo is only in business because someone there had the guts to say, we're not going to make playing cards anymore. 
we're going to make this new video game thing. And lots of businesses that traffic in the new, that traffic in pastimes or things that are current or technology, they disappear because they forget what they're there for in the first place. Western Union became Western Union because they pushed hard at the beginning of the telegraph. And when they had a chance to buy AT&T, the phone company, the bell system, they didn't do it because they saw themselves as being in the telegram business, not in the communication business. So it makes a brand for the ages in our everly, rapidly changing world is walking away from what you used to do so you have the resources to do the thing you signed up to do in the first place. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it first. Check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.